previously on Hacker Valley Blue. There's somebody who doesn't even have the basic security policy. Absolutely. <laughs> if I did have a magic box, what problem would you want that box to solve? People. <laughs> <laughs> we are the pit crew that's telling the driver, the business, the innovators, how hard they can push their car without taking undue risk to the organization. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged and need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned and that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time was the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Check them out by visiting axonius.com. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, we've brought back our good friend, Lenny Zeltzer. Lenny is Chief Information Security Officer at Axonius. He's also developed a mindset of looking at security components as building blocks to create a holistic security environment. To this day, Lenny keeps his technical edge even while operating as an executive and has wisdom that anyone can learn from. Let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, repping Hacker Valley Blue, Know Thyself. And we couldn't think of a better guest to have than our good friend, Lenny Zelser. Lenny is the Chief Information Security Officer at Axonius. Lenny is also an author and faculty fellow at SANS. But the best part about Lenny is he is a Hacker Valley alum. You can catch him in his previous episode with us on episode 47. Lenny, always a pleasure to speak to you and welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Hi, gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Know thyself, that's the focus of this season, but we'd love to learn a little bit more about you. You can definitely check out the previous episode like Ron mentioned, but for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, let's hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Today, I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at Exonius, which means that I'm running and maturing and moving forward our security program. Before taking on the role of actually owning a program, I spent quite a few years building security products and services for others to use as part of their security programs. And then before that, I was doing a lot of security-related consulting. And so all of a sudden, I look back and I realize I've been doing this for more than two decades going into different roles, but all of them related to cybersecurity because it turns out that's that's my passion and that's what I'm relatively good at. One of the first things that I think about when it comes to standing up a security program is really understanding 
what technology, what nodes, what applications, what accounts you have internal to your environment. It's such an important step that I think often gets swept under the rug. Would you agree that people don't really put enough focus on figuring out what is going on in their environment before they start implementing different solutions and, and building that tech stack? Yeah, quite often it's it's difficult to cause yourself to consider some of the less sexy aspects of information security as some of these foundational principles, uh, such as making sure that you understand what resources you're supposed to protect, which IT assets comprise your infrastructure, your organization security program. And so you jump right into sometimes perhaps fighting the big fires, you know, maybe incidents that you have to deal with or auditors that you have to interact with. And the next thing you know is you're fighting a whole lot of fires and you don't realize that perhaps the foundation of the security program is the reason why you're having so many day-to-day urgent activities that you have to spend time dealing with. Looking at your background, one of the things that we didn't mention is your background with understanding endpoints and also reverse engineering. And now you've you've shifted and you're focused on asset management and kind of tackling a whole new beast. What have you seen that has surprised you over just the evolution of your career from looking at binaries to now assets? These are two perhaps uh, opposite extremes in in many ways within cybersecurity. One is you zoom all the way in to the binary code, or usually we look at malware with the help of a hex editor or a disassembler. Like this is low-level bits and bytes of code that runs on our systems. And then the opposite end of the extreme where I spend my time now is talking about security program and using fancy words like controls and metrics <laughs> and maturity. So for me, it's been very valuable and refreshing to be able to swing between these two extremes. I find it almost therapeutic to sometimes go and start paying attention to code and I still analyze malware and teach classes on that topic. And what's refreshing about that activity is that it really allows me to get into a very particular zone that is a opportunity for me to take a break. The break is from dealing with humans, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> <laughs> because when, when you work as a security programs leader, much of your time is spent interacting with your colleagues, with your clients, with your vendors, uh, with other stakeholders in your program. And humans are hard and unpredictable and frustrating sometimes, though also sometimes energizing. And so uh, I found it very useful to be able to uh, switch contexts and take a break from one activity, then go back to another. And also I find that doing at least one technical thing to this day, having given up most of my or many of my other hands-on technical skills, it, it allows me to stay grounded in reality. Otherwise, I worry that when I start talking about a security program, it, it becomes so abstract. Uh, you can spend all of your time in GRC tools or in spreadsheets and forget that what's actually happening is there is endpoints out there, there's virtual machines, there's servers, there's code running on the systems, there's data flowing from one system to another. And I think it's useful for me to to be able to get visibility into the world of IT from both of those perspectives. I like that point there. Spending intentional time to perform something technical to still stay sharp 
and your abilities in some way or another. In the podcast, we talk about auxiliary skills quite a bit. We talk about the skills that one can possess that can help them in many other areas. And it sounds like staying somewhat technical still helps you talk about security programs and building security programs. What are some of the parallels between kind of your beginning experience with binaries and now looking at your current experience with building programs and working at Exonius? When I was starting out in the field, I, I joined the industry as a system administrator, then firewall administrator, and, and kind of moved on from there. And quite often, as, as a person who's focused on a very specific problem, such as how do I deploy a firewall to secure a network, or how do I harden a host, it's very easy to underappreciate the complexity of the larger ecosystem, and it's very easy to get frustrated by the way things are. And you wonder, look, there's a simple solution to my problem. Why don't you patch the system more regularly? Or why don't you allow me to restrict outbound traffic more rigorously? And, and in those days, I really couldn't understand why, is, why do I have to fight these fights to implement basic security measures that seemed to me to be just so simple, these decisions, these atomic decisions on their own seemed like a no-brainer. And then as I spent more and more time in the industry and I understood the bigger picture, the fact that all of these atomic building blocks of our security program fit together to create a very complex system, and then you throw humans into the mix, and, and that makes decision-making very difficult. And understanding what is truly the optimal way of securing not an individual system, but, but a, a broader ecosystem that is the company security program, that's a hard thing. So I've come to appreciate the, the challenge of actually introducing and providing security to an organization as I spent more and more time in the industry and now have a, a broader perspective on the security program than I did back then. You talk about being a provider, you're providing security to your organization, but you've also provided so much to the cybersecurity community altogether, from courses to books and also Remnux. I'd like to take a moment to, to talk about that passion project of yours. You've iterated over a, a couple times now. Talk to us a little bit about the origin of Remnux and sort of like that journey and that growth as you built it. Oh, uh, yes. So Remnix is the Linux-based toolkit that I created and maintain for malware analysts. And uh, there is a lot of wonderful, freely available open source tools that can help you investigate malicious software. A lot of that software runs really nicely on Linux, but it's hard to find and configure and, and install and avoid any kind of conflicts. And so in the days when I was doing a lot of incident response, I had the need to analyze malware quickly and have the right tools available to me. And so I put together this virtual machine that had a bunch of tools installed on it. I also used the same virtual machine in the class that I teach and have been teaching at SANS on the topic. And I provided it to students and it turned out that people found it useful. And so over time, the popularity of this toolkit grew. <laughs> and next thing I knew, 10 years have passed since I released it and lots of malware analysts still use it and rely on it. And what's been very rewarding for me is knowing that it is a product that I designed and maintained that, that other people are benefiting from. Like I can be doing something 
unrelated, cooking or, or sleeping. And at that very moment, someone is actually using something that I helped create and deriving value from it. That's incredibly rewarding. And it's actually the reason why I spent quite a few years doing security product management and building commercial security products. But when I work on this Linux toolkit, which includes a Ubuntu-based Linux distribution, it is one of those activities that I mentioned earlier that allows me to just take a break from human day-to-day -day interactions and focus on just technology. Though in this case, not reverse engineering malware, but figuring out why is this tool failing to compile and why is that library missing? Tell us a little bit about the challenges in, in maintaining this massive project. I know it, it, we spoke as you were redoing, what was it, version two? And uh, I know it, it couldn't have been easy, especially a project that you pretty much handle on your own. Could you tell us a little bit about the challenges of, of maintaining a project that people depend on? The biggest challenge for me has been to find a way to maintain this, let's call it a product, right? It's, it's a thing, this toolkit, to do it in a way where I am not the bottleneck. And for the longest time, I've been the only person that could do anything to move this distribution forward, uh, whether it's to update a tool or decide to add another utility or to change the configuration or to fix some kind of a misconfiguration. The way that the distro was set up, it, I was the only person capable of doing that. And there were people who would sometimes offer to help and I just couldn't find a technological way for us to set up this collaboration. And I think more broadly, oftentimes that's a challenge that we encounter in security programs and our day-to-day -day activities where you might be the only key person who can do a particular task and others are willing to help, but there's just no way to incorporate them into the workflow. And with, with Remnix, I really struggled with that. To address this challenge, I ended up completely redoing the architecture of the distro to rely more on GitHub as the repository for all the configuration files use SaltStack as a way of describing the configuration of every utility that's installed as part of this toolkit. And so what that means now is that people can actually fork the set of the configuration files that describe the distro, introduce their change, submit a pull request, I review it, but now there is a, a way in which others can contribute to the distro. It's still a rare thing that somebody contributes, but now it's possible. And when it happens, it's just, it, it ends up being a, a very joyous moment for me. Yeah, that collaboration aspect is so critical, especially when handling something like an open source project for over 10 years, which is uh, kudos to you. That's quite some time to, to have this project and really just maintain it and provide it that nurturing that it needs. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the collaboration aspects. Now that you've done open source projects, you've worked at vendors and built all of these security programs. What have been some of the surprises that you've encountered when it comes to collaboration in cybersecurity? That's a very broad question, of course. <laughs> the, the answer really depends on the type of activity that you're considering. For example, if you think about, let's say, the work that SOC analysts perform or that incident responders perform. I'm selecting those specific examples because this is an area where decisions need to be made very quickly. And oftentimes you need to bring different types of expertise into the decision. What that means is that people need to have a way to communicate. 
capture their ideas in real time and also hopefully maintain a record of what was done so that you can analyze later and learn from your uh, reaction to an incident or the way you handled a particular alert. But also people in those incidents need different types of information available to them very quickly. And they all want to know that they're looking at information that's reasonably accurate and they want to be able to discuss their observations, their findings. So getting people to communicate and providing all the data that people need to effectively collaborate, that's been very tricky because every person wants to have a slightly different perspective on the organization. They need a slightly different set of details that allows them to do their job. And, and it's hard empowering people to make decisions in a collaborative way while providing them with a diverse set of data sources that they require. When we talk about knowing thyself and we talk about asset management, a lot of the times we talk about the benefits of knowing what's in your environment. You know, you know how to fix things. You can have the inventory so you know exactly how much you have of one thing. But I don't think many people talk about the horror stories of asset management. What happens when you don't know what's in your environment? Do you have a, a good horror story that you could share with everyone that might push them in the direction of making sure they understand what's in their environment? Oh, boy. Well, certainly some examples that I can think of are scenarios, well, specifically from my incident response days, where my team would help an organization deal with a suspected and later perhaps confirmed breach. And we would come in and we would ask questions about what's in this environment. And we would get silence besides a few config files that don't give us full visibility into what systems reside here and how they communicate and what software is installed on them. And that made incident response hard. It really just slows you down because you now have to start gathering the, the information about the state of the environment. And anytime you're spending time gathering information during an ongoing incident, uh, that means you're not spending time doing something else like identifying which systems are infected or compromised and eradicating the malicious presence from the environment. And then another very different let's call it a horror story, though it's not really horror, I guess maybe it's just unpleasant, but it is when dealing with auditors who, of course, very naturally often begin their conversations with the simple sounding request. Can you give us a list of assets that you're aiming to secure that are in scope of our audit? And this ends up being a very stressful question because in many cases, the information about IT components of the environment resides in different places. And you have to look into lots of information sources. Maybe it's Active Directory, maybe it's your AWS console, maybe it's your endpoint security console and gather that information, bring it together. Lots of spreadsheets being passed around. How do you know that you've gathered all the details that you need to satisfy your, your audit requirements? So time, I suppose, is, is, is the common source of stress and a disadvantage that we get when having to just spend our time manually gathering all this information. I've been in that situation to where I've been asked about assets, endpoints, users on an environment, and it was a lot tougher to gather than I expected. But now with digital transformation occurring and all these explosion of tools, there's a lot more resources to get a handle on your assets. But after you find all of your assets, you find the security gaps and then you need a tool or a solution to expose those security gaps. And then you want to enforce some policies and do alerting on these 
security gaps. But I find the enforcement aspects is pretty difficult to, to generate an alert is one thing. Maybe you can put a tool into place and then get the information that you need about this event. But making sure that event doesn't happen again, I, I find to be somewhat difficult and an elusive target for organizations. What are your thoughts on enforcing security policies in the world we live in today? It's certainly a challenge, and it's a challenge for many reasons. Uh, some of these are technological challenges, and some of these are just related to the fact that business and real world is is messy. Let's uh, actually talk about the, the messy state of the world. The reason there's a gap, well, there is some reason why you've identified a gap that needs to be covered, some reason why that noncompliance or oversight exists. That reason could be that it was no one's job to address it in the first place. Or that reason could be that somebody made a decision that maybe seemed smart at that given moment, but ultimately puts your security program at risk. And so when you try to fix that gap that you've identified, whether fixing means applying technological measures or talking to somebody, you get resistance because probably the same reasons why the gap exists in the first place are still on those people's minds. And they might say, we can't actually, I don't know, uh, patch that system. You found that the system is unpatched, but we can't patch it because it breaks some old software we have to run on it. Or we can't actually, I don't know, uh, restrict access to the system because we have a partner that accesses it in a particular weird way. And so you really need to spend time understanding why is the gap there in the first place? What are the motivations of people involved in deciding how to address it and then persuade others to get on board so that you can ultimately fix it. And at that point, the technological fix itself seems like an easy step once you've talked to all those humans and gotten everybody on board. And then, of course, there is the technological challenges related to how do you quickly address the gap? Let's assume you've got people on board and you have enough political or other power to actually address the gap. Well, now you need to decide is there a way for me to react quickly to the problem? For example, if I've noticed that uh, some system appeared in my cloud infrastructure and it's not being scanned for vulnerabilities, can I automatically direct my vulnerability scanner to start scanning it from now on by maybe using that solutions API to direct it to start uh, scanning that system? Or do I need to take more manual steps, um, notify somebody by email, then somebody has to log in to the console and take manual steps? That's more costly. That's more time consuming. So really, when I think about addressing risks, I think about it from those two perspectives. Why is the situation that way in the first place? Do we need to get humans involved, understand, get them on board, get support for addressing this particular problem now and perhaps in the future? And then how do we get our technology to help us address the problem quickly without it taking too much of our human time, requiring a lot of manual actions. So we usually don't ask scandalous questions, but I'm genuinely curious of your opinion. When it comes to asset management, is that an IT-centric function? Is it a security-centric function? Or is it a combination of both? So I'm sure there's a lot of different camps out there, but just curious on your, your thoughts about that. The way that technology supports businesses today involves a lot of groups being responsible for different aspects of the technology. So you might have a group that's responsible for 
corporate infrastructure, corporate IT, employee laptops, and other endpoints. You might have another group that is responsible for your data center or cloud infrastructure. And it's a different group because that requires a very different skill set. You might have yet another group that's responsible for, I don't know, R&D that, that demands certain specialized hardware or specialized software. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the way that technology is used today creates a lot of groups, a lot of silos. And each of those groups tracks or wants to track its assets perhaps in a slightly different way. You know, the way that you keep an eye on your cloud infrastructure and those virtual machines or even containers that might only exist for a few minutes and then disappear, that's a different, that's a different process from how you would track your laptops that your employees use in the office or at home or when they travel. So we do have multiple silos, multiple groups, and it's not just IT and security, it's, it's more, as I just outlined. And so we need a way to allow each of those groups to do what they do best, to maintain some level of independence, but at the same time, find a mechanism to take the information that they know how to access and then make it available to other teams. Because just because corporate IT might be responsible for maintaining employee endpoints doesn't mean that security doesn't want to take a look at those endpoints to make sure, for example, that the appropriate endpoint security software is installed. So it is a shared problem, uh, but one that is becoming a little bit more difficult to address than when our infrastructure was a little bit more uniform and it was much easier to draw a line between the responsibilities of IT and security. With just all of your experience and the wide breadth of knowledge that you have in the field of cybersecurity, what are some things that you're starting to see come into perspective today? What are some of the new technologies that are on the top of your mind and radar? And also, where do you think the technology is heading from just a holistic cybersecurity perspective going forward? A big trend and it might be a very obvious trend, so I don't know if it's, it's even worth bringing this up. But the big trend is, of course, organizations don't want to manage their own IT if they can avoid it. And this is obvious to those of us who have been working in companies that were you know, started maybe five, maybe seven years ago, because even in those days, you're starting to just rely much more on third-party SaaS or cloud providers to give you the technology that you need. But before that, you would, of course, get your own data center space, release a few racks, and start deploying your own servers. You would have a separate office where people would come into, and there would be certain infrastructure available just in that location that you could not access from the outside until you perhaps set up a VPN. So that is, of course, changing very much. Our business users expect to have all of their business applications and data available to them from anywhere they are, just from the convenience of their browser. And so naturally, we accommodate that, uh, those, those needs by getting SaaS-based applications that are accessible from the browser. On the one hand, it's wonderful for the IT team to now has, have less direct responsibilities. Now there are fewer servers for the IT organization to patch, for example. But at the same time, it is very scary to now have a higher reliance on a third party to provide security and availability of this infrastructure. Because if that SaaS resource goes down, 
the internal business user still calls your IT person to find out why is that app not working? And you say, oh, it's because uh, they're down. Nothing I can do. Well, that's not a very acceptable answer to most business users. So <laughs> a lot of trends in security and IT, I think, are in support of this idea that applications should be accessible from anywhere. The business users are, and we don't want to burden our own staff with maintaining infrastructure unless we really have to. Under the theme of know thyself, we're looking at it from a few different levels, knowing the threats in our environment, uh, knowing our community, knowing our organization, knowing our assets, and also knowing a bit of ourself. With your very storied career in cybersecurity, what was the biggest discovery that you've made over your entire career about yourself? My realization about myself, uh, maybe it happened about a year ago, I think, maybe maybe a year and a half ago. And it was the realization that I get bored of doing the same type of function for more than, I don't know, five years, three to five years. I still want to do everything that I do at work in the context of cybersecurity, but I don't want to be seen or do work related to, let's say, endpoint security for longer than some number of years or incident response or consulting and penetration testing or running a security program or building security products. So I was trying to understand why is it that I get the urge to shift into doing something else every three to five years. And I realized that that's maybe that's, that's the way in which I avoid getting bored. Maybe that's the way in which I motivate myself to learn new things. So my anchor is the overall underlying knowledge of how technology works and how security plays a part in allowing organizations to function. And uh, I like switching roles and, and my own professional development and, and the texts that I read and, and the experimentation that I perform in my lab and the work that I do, it is in support of being able to take on different personas within the organization um, in the broader context of cybersecurity. And that concept of switching roles and changing exactly what you do, would you say that started much earlier when in your youth, or is that something that was just developed over your, your time in cybersecurity? You know, it started, it started when I just entered the professional workspace after graduating from college, but it was happening organically, and only recently did I realize why it was happening, or only recently did I notice that that's a theme to how I like to work. I started out doing Unix system administration, and then somehow found myself doing Windows system administration. And then for a while, I found myself writing software. And then for a while, I found myself doing network security, then penetration testing, then building managed security services, then building uh, endpoint security products. And and every few years, I somehow would find myself doing something a little bit different though in the broader context of security. And only, I don't know, maybe just a year ago, I started looking back and thinking, how did I end up here? And who am I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> with your theme, like, who am I professionally? And why, at the time, did I agree to take on a role of a CISO? which is, by the way, a role that I earlier in my career told myself I will never want to take on. Uh, I had that insight, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, 
when I looked at other people working as or striving to become chief information security officers, officers, I thought, why would they want to do that? It seems like it's a thankless job and it's so hard and you have all this responsibility and you don't really have the power to introduce change the way that you would want. Why would anybody want to do it? <laughs> and then a year and a half ago, I took on such a role. <laughs> so yeah, I was doing a lot of soul searching at the time to understand why am I saying yes to this opportunity? And does it? why did it feel good to say yes? There's someone listening right now that's thinking, we have neglected asset management. We've neglected understanding what's in our environment. And they want to start moving in a positive direction. What piece of advice would you have for them to start maturing their ability to understand what's in their environment? Understand what are the major data sources that you can tap into to understand what you have in your environment. Rather than thinking, let me create this one new way of serving everything that I have. The realization that I had some time ago is that an organization probably already has information about its assets. It's just that that information is spread across multiple technological silos. So your identity provider knows something about systems from which your employees log in. That's a useful data source. Uh, if you have Active Directory, that is an information source about what systems are a part of your organization's infrastructure. If you're using Azure or AWS or, or GCP, then the, the cloud orchestration layer can tell you something about your assets there. So lots of these information sources. The information is there. Think about how you can tap into those information sources and start with what, I don't know, think of three sources of information that might not give you 100% coverage, but might get you the biggest bang for the buck. Maybe that's your let's say uh, your vulnerability scanner, your Active Directory, and perhaps your, I don't know, AWS. Tap into those information sources, extract the data from there, and then see what you end up with. You might have much a much better understanding of what you have after you complete that exercise than you did before. Couldn't agree more, Lenny. Thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you're doing, and also for Exonius, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, if you're curious about what I do at my job, then check out exonius.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm Lenny Zeltzer, at Lenny Zeltzer there, and I have my own personal website, zeltzer.com. Thank you again, Lenny. We'll be sure to drop all of those details in the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with all the things that you and Exonius are working on. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.